As we move towards bringing children back to school, we must ask who was worst affected by the pandemic and why. Decoding Exclusion, an interview series by the Vithi Center for Legal Policy, aims to discuss the various facets of the problem of exclusion in education in India. With a range of experts in the field of law, policy and education, we examine evidence on new sites of exclusion and ways in which we can support children and their households as we bring them back to school. Welcome to Vidhi's Decoding Exclusion, an interview series where we break down the various facets of exclusion from mainstream education in India. I'm Nisha and I lead the Inclusive Education Vertical at the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy. And in today's episode, I'm in conversation with Nidhu Smita Bordoloi, Associate Fellow at the Accountability Initiative, a research group under one of India's leading policy think tanks, the Center for Policy Research. In today's conversation, we discuss in some detail the ways in which central and state schemes, including the Samagra Shiksha Abhiyan, are designed to address the issue of out-of-school children. We discuss the challenges that the state faces in prioritizing education across different stages of schooling, given public finance constraints and considerations of per-child expenditure. We also reflect on what the pandemic has taught us about the key systemic challenges that we must continue to advocate for, such as stronger social security systems for households and more streamlined support for frontline workers and educators. Ridhu Smita's extensive work in the sector gives us much to think about. It's a fascinating conversation, and I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you so much, Ridhu Smita, for joining us today. Um, I will. Be- My pleasure. Um, so, Mrida Smita is, an, as, as we all know, an associate fellow at the Accountability Initiative at Center for Policy Research in New Delhi. Um, and today we'll be talking a little bit about what Accountability Initiative has uh, been doing in the area of education and well-being of children, um, and specifically on the topic of out-of-school children and what state efforts have sort of been towards that and whether any of that has sort of changed over um you know, the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so, Nidhiswita, if you're fine with it, we can just get started. Um, sure, my yeah. first question for you is really, what are the current areas of focus in terms of, you know, whether it's research or any sort of engagement with uh, the state or, you know, the, the government uh, with respect to education and well-being of children um, as far as accountability initiatives work has gone? Yeah, so um, as part of accountability initiative, um, our primary work has been to conduct research to understand, uh, you know, the the processes and the status of implementation of various government welfare programs, schemes, policy interventions, mainly focusing on the social sector and thereby, you know, to identify the issues or the bottlenecks in these processes uh, involved. So as to eventually achieve our core uh, goal, which is to uh, have um, responsive governance, you know, so um, as part of our work specifically in the education space in the in the recent uh, years or months uh, uh, as you might already know that uh, we have contributed to the global education monitoring uh, south asia report um, our specific work focused on the regulation of non state actors in the school education space in india mm-hmm. basically we tried to understand what are the uh, you know uh, rules and regulations that are in place on paper versus what are uh, and how these are implemented on the ground mm-hmm. and uh, monitoring of compliance basically um, in order to achieve the overall goal of education right to have equity and inclusive education for every child in india as part of as you are saying education and overall uh, overall work at uh, ai so um, you know uh, in the in the in the last one year we we have been focusing a little bit more on social protection or uh, very specifically child protection mm-hmm. because the covid has highlighted that you know one thing is not uh, separate from the other and as we all know that education or child protection in a way uh, are uh, are linked to each other because these are all rights of children so um, you know um, we are currently doing some research um, uh, to understand the the government policies and government structures for child protection in the in the country as a whole and specifically uh, specifically focusing on on uh, one or two particular states okay. and um, also also because child protection in itself is 
uh, takes a multi-sectoral approach. So we are trying to understand how till now the focus has been to uh, respond to a particular vulnerability that a child is exposed to versus taking a preventive approach. Uh, you know, in the in the world uh, literature, also it says that taking a preventive approach is a better way to to you know protect children from mm-hmm. all kinds of vulnerabilities, and and therefore um, how, why I mean how institutionalization should be the last resort, but to have all kinds of non institutional care uh, should be the priority. And last but not the least, because uh, union budget is around the corner, uh, we we come out with a set of analysis on different uh, centrally sponsored schemes and central sector schemes mm-hmm. uh, around the union budget time. And as part of education specifically, we are working on uh, you know uh, public finances for school education mm-hmm. through the centrally sponsored scheme of Samagra Shiksha. Looking at, uh, you know, budget um, releases, allocation expenditures at both union as well as state level, and also linking with some of the outputs and outcomes. Okay, great. So um, a couple of like interesting things that you've mentioned here. So one is, um, and it sort of leads me to my next question, right, of how COVID-19 might have altered the direction in which your research has uh, moved. And you spoke in that respect about child protection and sort of understanding what structures there are in the case of India. So would you, could you sort of elaborate a little bit on that? So what, what kind of child protection are we talking about? And, you know, are you focusing on specific vulnerabilities that maybe uh, were exposed or exacerbated during COVID-19, right? And when you talk about these preventive measures, um, how do you think India is faring in terms of actually creating something like that? And also maybe the research is in nascent stages. So that that may be a question we'll get to later, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, okay. So first on the child protection um, question. So uh, when I say child protection, actually a child can be exposed to a range of vulnerabilities, right? It can be physical vulnerabilities. It can be exploited. It can be uh, not uh, being able to have the right to, you know, go to school. Uh, Even not going to school is a vulnerability. Uh, You know, uh, whether a child has dropped out of school or it's not he or she is not even attending school because maybe the child is exposed to child labor. Mm. Right. So there are so many aspects of vulnerabilities that a child can be exposed to. What we are trying to understand is uh, two, three things. Mm -hmm. One is what has been the public finance uh, allocated for uh, child protection in India? And um, and. uh, also, what what are the types of child protection services that are available and what is the government structure for ch- child protection in India? Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, um, as you might be aware that, um, I mean, we have, we have done research in the past also uh, highlighting the fact that the budget for child protection has been uh, relatively low in India. Uh, of course, child protection, one of the key schemes for child protection which was earlier called CPS, Child Protection Services. Mm -hmm. And now in the last budget, it has been uh, renamed as Mission Vatsalya. And uh, it is taking a broader approach of child welfare and looking at child protection in a broader, uh, you know, perspective of child welfare. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So, yeah, budgets have, uh, allocations have increased compared to what we have been, uh, you know, uh, we have been seeing in the past uh, few years. Um, However, there's a, it's, it's a long way to go because we are, uh, as a country also, in terms of services, Mm -hmm. uh, we are at the nascent stage because the whole whole focus till now has been to look at, uh, you know, uh, providing a service once a child is exposed to some kind of vulnerability, uh, as opposed to actually identify uh, different kinds of vulnerabilities while the child is not even suffered uh, uh, to a large extent, and then trying to take a preventive approach, right? Right. So, So this whole a uh, subcomponent within child protection is called the non-institutional care. Mm-hmm. And within that, there's something called um, uh, family-based care or alternate family-based care. So children mm-hmm. who have lost uh, their parents or who do not have their own families, they can be given services like foster care or right. um, 
sponsorships right so then uh, i mean uh, we are trying to also uh, look at that aspect and not only focus on the institutional care and uh, as i said how it is linked to education is if a child has dropped out of school all the services that are part of the child protection uh, uh, you know uh, space that that can be availed by that child and mm-hmm. eventually that child needs to be reintegrated into the schooling system Right. So, so yeah. So in a way, it's um, it's linked uh, to to one another. Yeah. yeah. No. Absolutely. Because um, I think so. In in the study that we had done on um, out of school children during COVID nineteen and how that's you know uh, basically different research projects that sort of studied that phenomenon during COVID. I think the main thing that we do see is that those who were already vulnerable in certain ways that as maybe as country or as, as academics that we've already identified. Um, are the ones who were sort of in places of increased vulnerability, right? So it is almost, I mean, something that we, we knew who was going to be worst affected even before it happened, but yet it happened. So I think what you're saying about sort of preventive measures makes makes complete sense in terms of both identifying who's at risk. There's enough evidence uh, yes. to be yeah. able to, you know, already do that and try and, yeah. try and prevent yeah. it from getting into that. Yes. Uh, and uh, I mean, just to add to what you're saying, uh, what we have also seen and then trying to have more discussions or, uh, uh, you know, um, maybe writing pieces around it, having more discussions with experts and researchers is the fact that we have seen that in the last two years, um, you know, there has been an increase in enrollment in government schools. I mean, uh, till Uh, Till one and a half years back, we were all contemplating about it. We were all thinking maybe there is an increase. But when the data came out, the UDIS 2021 and now UDIS 2021-22, both the data sets, which are like census of schools in India. So once the data uh, was out, uh, I mean, all the contemplation that we were having actually were uh, validated. Mm. And we saw that especially at the elementary level, there has been an, uh, there has been a continuous increase in enrollment in government schools Mm. and the related decline in enrollment in, in private schools. So now the fact that this has happened is also an indication that in uh, COVID-like situations, when basically a lot of families lost their uh, livelihoods and then also maybe they, they haven't lost their jobs, but got a, uh, had to take a cut in their income, right? Yeah. So then maybe government schools are providing that cushion, uh, a kind of social protection, basically, Mm. um, where uh, children can actually come to government school and have uh, at least till the elementary level. It's 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 free. And also, it's not only about education. You're also getting so many other services like midday meal or, you know, many other services basically so so uh, i mean this is also another area which actually uh, reinforces our um, our discussion as a policy research organization to how uh, to even uh, you know focus again on increasing the quality of government schools Absolutely. and also efficiency in the Mm, um, uh, delivery of education right through the government or public school system in India. right absolutely so this this is a little bit um maybe you know left to field from what some of our discussion um is about already but specifically this point of like public education as a social security net right and how we've seen especially during covid um, that has become all the more true. And in some sense, you know, when we're working towards um, strengthening the public schooling system and we know what it sort of does for equity and things, or rather what private schools do for inequity in some sense, um, is there a need for us to maybe as, you know, think tanks and research organizations that do have some amount of conversation with the state to kind of talk about school rationalization? That policy decision that happened a few years ago, um, you know, and many states sort of did rationalization on a very large scale. Is there a need to sort of go back and see how that might have affected? Because it, it was the school rationalization as a policy decision was 
a shift away from what the RT had promised, right? In many ways, because we had said we'll have that one kilometer radius for primary schools, we'll do five kilometer radius for secondary schools. And then, yes, there were certain decisions about quality around single teachers, things like that, um, that led to the decision to shut down schools on that scale. But is that something that we need to reconsider when we talk about it through this lens? I mean, yes, uh, because I myself have worked on a research study to understand school consolidation in the state of Rajasthan, uh, which happened uh, on, a, on a very, very large scale between 2014 and 2018. Uh, there were many, many schools that were merged with, uh, you know, larger schools, etc. Yeah. So um, there are two points to it. One is when schools are consolidated, um, one aspect of it is that, okay, maybe there was a secondary school. Now you have a school which has uh, classes uh, from one till class 10 or one till class 12. In that sense, now it's a, it's a, it's a, um, you know, from primary to high secondary, you have all the classes in the same school. That is one kind of consolidation. The other is that, okay, you're merging a primary school uh, with, an upper primary school maybe. So now you you had initially one to five, now you have one to eight. You know, that is another kind of uh, consolidation. The school still remains an elementary school. But then you have, you know, more number of classes. Mm. Now, um, modern consolidation, because see, I mean, there are rationale behind consolidating schools, right? So some of the key rationale from the government side uh, behind consolidating schools are, uh, you know, maybe a primary school because of the number of children enrolled has only one or two teachers. Now you're part of a larger school where there are many more teachers so that every uh, class might be now able to have a dedicated teacher similarly maybe um, initially because there are only 10 schools or 15 sorry 10 or 15 students in a particular schools everyone was made to sit in the same room irrespective of whether you're in class five or you're in class two and then you know everyone is being taught at the same time by the same teacher Mm -hmm. now if you're part of a bigger school maybe that is not happening also because you're part of a bigger school you have access to a larger infrastructure maybe a library, maybe a bigger playground, etc, etc. And also the whole idea of um, uh, basically uh, saving, uh, basically making it more efficient in terms of financing, right? Instead of managing two schools now, you have to finance or manage only one school from the government Mm -hmm. side. Right. Um, However, my main concern is that in the process of consolidating or consolidation, if we are breaking the RT rule of having a primary school within a kilometer radius, having an upper primary school within three kilometer radius. Mm -hmm. If that is what is not happening, then it's a big problem because the access issue still remains for little children. Um, I don't know. I mean, the data, if you look at Lok Sabha, Rajya Sabha questions that are answered, you have a feeling that, um, you know, more than 95 to 98% schools are meeting the RT uh, criteria of distance. However, I sometimes I fail to understand that if so many primary schools are closed down, of course, they're not part of a secondary school. That's for right. sure. But if they're closed down, then how the distance criteria is still met? I think that is one area that we we should, I think, definitely start um, deliberating with uh, the government, the state mm. governments, and mm. whether that access is becoming a bigger issue. Um, once someone is part of a school, uh, that that continuum has maybe been easier because many children used to drop um, <laughs> You know, just because the child has to go to a different secondary school once completing an elementary level uh, of schooling. Because, you know, going to a new place, new school might have been different, uh, Mm -hmm. sorry, difficult. That is maybe um, to a certain extent resolved. Mm -hmm. But then this whole thing of access is, is, I think, a bigger issue uh, right now. Right, right. I mean, thank you so much for answering that because it's one of those, you know, now that NEP is sort of moving towards this early childhood piece, we'll, we're going to have to start answering these same questions. Oh my again. God, that's so like totally, that's <laughs> again, we yeah. talking about it. That also has so many, uh, you know, challenges of its own. Um, I mean, also different states uh, have different types of uh, yeah. 
uh, you know, arrangement of yeah. primary. Yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah, so it's one of those things where because we've been doing a little bit of work in early childhood and trying to understand, you know, what the NEP is proposing and how we can move in that direction. I think this is one of those questions that comes up, right? You Like you have to start with the question of availability and access. And then you, I mean, you do have to turn to the RTA and see where yeah. have we gone from there? How much was that? Yeah, but in any case, thank, thank you for uh, answering that question, even though it was off topic. But okay, sorry. So coming back to, uh, you know, what we were talking about, about the Samagra Shiksha Abhiyan, you said you all have been doing a lot of work on sort of budgetary allocations and the way in which uh, SMSA has sort of been uh, implemented maybe across different states. So could you tell us a little bit about what the approach has been as far as reintegration of uh, out-of-school children? Um, maybe across the board, but also particularly under the Samagra Shiksha Abhiyan. Hmm. And this could be also like pre- prior to COVID as well. Sure, sure. So um, if you uh, if you look at the um, uh, Samagra Shiksha Abhiyan annual work plan and budgets, um, there are different uh, components under which states can propose funds uh, to the um, union government. So basically every state at the beginning of a financial year has to has, has to propose uh, that, okay, we need funding for these, these, these purposes in this year. I mean, of course, some of these components are, are also with respect to RT entitlements. For example, right. if, a, if an elementary school uh, child has to get uh, two pairs of uh, uniforms, free textbooks, etc., these also come under uh, Samagra Shiksha funding. Um, so under Samagra Shiksha, there is a, a component called quality interventions. Mm-hmm. And under quality interventions, there are different, uh, again, different subcomponents. And uh, what you are uh, asking is about reintegration of out-of-school children that comes under this uh, component called quality interventions. Okay. So under uh, uh, under this subcomponent of out-of-school children, basically states can propose funds to um, identify ch- such children and then bring them back to uh, the the formal education system at the elementary level, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we are not talking about secondary uh, education mm-hmm. yeah. here because um, uh, secondary education still doesn't come under the Right to Education Act. Of course, secondary education does come under Samagra Shiksha. You know, earlier till uh, when Sarva Shiksha Abhiyan was there, Sarva Shiksha Abhiyan was only focusing on elementary education. Right. Now in April 2018, when SSA and RMSA and teacher education, these three schemes are merged together. Mm-hmm. Now Samagra Shiksha focuses from pre-primary till the higher secondary level. Right. However, this out-of-school children component is still concentrated on the elementary uh, level uh, age group. Okay. Um, so... Basically, what happens is states conduct different types of surveys every year to mm-hmm. identify out-of-school children, and then um, uh, there are, uh, you know, there are basically uh, reintegration programs or uh, maybe you know um, remedial teaching kind of courses that are there. So uh, basically, children are given some kind of um, a training. And then uh, depending on uh, the appropriate uh, grade that a child should be enrolled into, then the child is actually enrolled into that, uh, that grade or that class. Um, so, uh, so yeah, this is basically the process that is um, followed. However, um, in many states, uh, their education departments also do conduct such types of interventions it is not that uh, reintegration of -of out-of-school children only happens through the funding of samagra shiksha many state governments put in their own uh, budgetary resources to identify and reintegrate such children Um, because you have talked about samagra shiksha i think here it's it's also very important to mention the fact that uh, there is a central sector scheme called the um, National uh, Child Labor Project, NCLP, which was uh, till last year, which was part of um, the Labor Department, right. uh, Ministry of Labor. It is a 100% central uh, funded scheme. Um, and in the States, 
this scheme used to be implemented to the state level labor departments mm. now from this year uh it is said that in a phase manner because it will take some time uh in maybe two three years eventually it will it, it is now uh considered to be part of samagra shiksha um again it is about reintegration of out of school children back into schools because this scheme basically focuses on identifying child labor right Okay, so basically, child laborers are identified. They are brought back to uh, you know um, um, there are certain centers called I think STCs. Um, uh, basically, these are uh, either schools or separate centers mm-hmm. where they are brought back. They are given some kind of remedial teaching. They are also given uh, midday meal, you know, health facilities, everything. Mm -hmm. And then after a few months, I think two to three months, they're reintegrated back into the schooling system. Right. So it is, it is, again, as I said, it's a combination of child protection and uh, education where Mm -hmm. child laborers are identified specifically and they are brought back to the um, mainstream schooling system. And because it involves child labor, it is again an allied sector or multi-sectoral approach because the identification of the child labor on the ground actually involves multiple government departments and officials, right. whether it's the district administration, whether it's the police, mm. maybe health, maybe child protection officials. So, so at that identification level, so many departments are involved, mm. but eventually it is part of Samagra Shiksha because now it will be, uh, you know, uh, the, the 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 final reintegration into the schooling system will happen through samagra shiksha um so you you spoke a little bit about how states themselves also of course allocate their own budget so yeah, do they yeah. also take uh, different approaches towards samagra shiksha abhiyan um is you know what they sort of do under the scheme or is it a similar sort of approach of identification remedial programs is that the I mean, general idea Yes, the general process is the same. What happens is um, different states, actually, if you look at last two years, uh, specifically during COVID, because Mm -hmm. there were uh, higher dropouts of children compared to the earlier years, uh, there were, uh, you know, enrollment drives. Mm-hmm. or mission mode, uh, you know, enrollment drives to identify out-of-school children and reintegrate them back into the formal education system. Right. For example, if, um, because we work in Bihar, we uh, we know for sure that Bihar government also uh, run, I think, two, three enrollment uh, drives mm-hmm. during last uh, two years to actually identify children uh, on the ground who were out of school. You know, similarly, Maharashtra, I think... Uh, in the last one year they they run uh something called um i think zero dropout mission mm-hmm. uh, so 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 these kind of missions are basically driven by their uh, state level uh, education departments right but but sometimes you know the samagri shiksha funding is uh also used for the same purpose so Mm. maybe part of the funding comes from state's own budgetary resources and part of the funding sometimes come through samagra shiksha because the ultimate objective is the same it's essential that if you do it through samagra shiksha you have to do it very very in a a very separate uh, manner so maybe um, both the sometimes both um, sources of funding are used to achieve Mm. the same purpose but yeah, I'm um, I'm very sure that especially during the last two years, many schools have run their own mission mode drives to identify such children and get uh, getting them back to schools. Apart from the um, you know, uh, apart from the provision under Samagra Shisha, that is irrespective of the COVID. Right. Uh, so, so so that that is there for every year. Right. Right. Understood. Yeah. Um, so the, the other thing that you've mentioned, which is quite interesting, is that the uh, component of reintegration of out-of-school children mm-hmm. is uh, or continues to be done at the sort of level of elementary education as far as the Samagra Shikshabhyan is concerned. Yeah. Yeah, but of yeah. course, I presume states would do things or do yeah. drives at the yeah. secondary level as well. But is there a, I mean, is there a particular reason we know of that it has not been extended up to secondary? Because of course, we know that in terms of like, sheepskin levels of schooling like you do see a large amount of dropouts between you know the shift from primary to sort of uh, upper primary and secondary right so is there a particular reason that's not an area that we've been able to 
um, include within this scheme or is it, you know, as most things are sort of constraint problem, resource constraint issue? Uh, partly everything, actually. So one major reason is that, uh, as I said, till now, secondary education is not part of the right to education yeah. in India, right? So many of these uh, rights that are defined mm. are, uh, are still... Um, uh, still uh, constrained at the elementary level in practice. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, uh, you know, uh, compulsory education. Uh, if um, if a, so, basically, a state is mandated to ensure that every child in six to fourteen year uh, age group has to be in school. Mm-hmm. But if a seventeen year old child is not in a high secondary class, then uh, it's it's not a legal mandate uh, mm-hmm. uh, to you know uh, also because of as as you said because of um, limited resources yeah. um, uh, ensuring legal mandate is is like a compulsion but beyond that it is uh, whatever is left in terms of resources that that you're putting into it yeah. uh, if you if you look at samagra shiksha um, total budget mm-hmm. uh, because it covers both elementary and secondary and higher secondary you will see that most of the states put in more than 90% of their total samagra shiksha budget still onto elementary education mm-hmm. so then um, you have to put in more resources not also because if you look at per child expenditures per child expenditure at secondary level is much higher than yeah. per child expenditure at elementary level yeah even if it was free because see elementary education from government side it's free right so when we talk about per child expenditure we basically talk about how much money government is putting into elementary right yeah. so then um, even if you consider only you know uh, that it's coming only from the government side, uh, partial expenditure at secondary is much, much higher. So yeah. then, um, I mean, it's very evident that we have to put in much more funding for secondary. Also yeah. considering the fact that at uh, the, the national education policy, mm. talk about universalization of school education, yeah. not only elementary education. Of yeah. course, RT is only covering elementary but we are talking about actually school education by 2030, yeah. which is just seven years away. So I think it's a big, big issue. Uh, the The public investment part is a big issue. Right, right. So, I mean, almost one of those things of, you know, there, there's so much conversation around um, what is the sort of next step for the RT, right? As the sort of primary education legislation that we have in this country, yeah. it was designed in a perfect, I mean, in a way for what it was meant to do um, in 2009. Yeah. But now so many years later, we need to sort of update it, right? So whether yeah. that's extending it down for early childhood or extending it up, like you said, to cover sort of school education, maybe that needs to happen before those budgetary allocations even come in or the other way around, right? Yeah, I mean, there are there have been conversation around extending RTE to uh, till the secondary level, yeah. uh, especially when NEP 2020 was released, yeah. uh, because it, ha- it it is talking about universalization of school education, achieving uh, universalization by 2030 from pre-primary to, to, to high secondary level. There are many conversations that started around extending because then it comes as a legal mandate and you have to put in uh, money aside to ensure that this is happening. Of course, we are talking about a huge, huge sum of money because uh, we are talking about an age group where per child expenditures are much, much higher. So so I think this is another area where we need to have a lot more uh, policy advocacy, deliberations, discussions, you know, highlighting this fact that only now uh, the stage of uh, development that India is at, uh, having elementary schooling is not enough. Uh, And um, I mean, we should be happy that we are at a stage where we can say that we have achieved 95 to 98% of uh, gross enrollment ratio at the elementary Mm. level. But then without that, you know, uh, translating into similar levels of uh, gross enrollment ratios at secondary yeah uh the the whole thing about um, 
creating uh, this uh, workforce for future is not uh, going to be materializing. Yeah. So I think uh, that is one big area that needs a lot of push, a lot of advocacy right now. Right, right. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, coming, coming back to sort of, um, you know, what we were saying about how different states have slightly different approaches to the way in which they uh, reintegrate OSC, but largely it sort of follows a specific thing. So um, during COVID-19, one is, um, you know, has accountability initiative been sort of um, engaging with different states on this particular piece? I think based on the work you described, maybe not directly on OSC. Uh, but one thing I did want to ask was, would you be able to comment at all on what are some of the sort of challenges that the states were facing uh, in trying to address the reintegration of OSC, uh, specifically during COVID-19, given the numbers increase so much? Uh, I can broadly talk about uh, education delivery, challenges mm. that states have faced during education delivery. Um not because we were able to walk on the ground because it was extremely difficult yeah. to go to the field during uh, those one and a half, two years. However, um, because we have our colleagues, uh, you know, in five different states and we, uh, we have been uh, tracking and they have been tracking actually what is happening at the ground. Um, I think I can, I can definitely say two, three points. One is that, Sitting here looking at government finances, we we knew for sure that there were cuts in public finances going into certain sectors within the broader social sector because of two reasons. One was that government had to put in more funds on the public health uh, sector. The other was the overall economic slowdown that happened in parallel and that affected the revenue uh, revenue generation of both union government and the state governments, right? right? So there were less amount of money and then there was very, very high demand from the health sector. Mm. So in order to ensure that, that you know, uh, health and livelihoods are uh, not affected as much, uh, there were uh, there were actually um, uh, circulars that mm. were sent to various ministries. Mm. Education was one of them to cut or to restrict um, expenditures uh, during those one one and a half years. Right. So if you look at Samagra Shiksha also, you see that there was a clear cut um, drop in the overall budget for Samagra Shiksha mm. in 2021 and 2122. Uh, we don't see that this year in 2023. Okay. Again, there is a um, there's a rise. But those two years there were definitely cuts in basically government finances. Mm. Now uh at the state level, again, they were facing a similar situation because there was a revenue crunch situation. There was an economic slowdown. They were not having enough uh, resources of their own also to put in the education sector. So overall, this whole um, crunch of finances, I think, was being felt. Yeah. Uh, you know, although um, schools were closed, but then this whole, um, basically, there were less money uh, yeah. available to be spent on education that was one one big um, challenge right the other other point is that although states were you know very quick to respond to the needs of the situation yeah. in terms of ensuring education delivery you know uh, and states were quite open actually to welcome ngos and private organizations to help them develop content you yeah know? whether it's WhatsApp-based content, whether it's radio, uh, you know, yeah. audio audio content, whether it's uh, sessions that ha- could be televised through the television or, uh, you know, digital um, uh, uh, sessions, uh, yeah. online, uh, online and digital sessions. I mean, states were quite quick to uh, adapt to uh, the need of the hour, um, mm. you know, it, to ensure that there's enough content that is available with the with the children mm. to, to continue their education, uh, uh, you know. But the problem was that um, it was, uh, it was difficult to implement that on the ground in the mm. sense that, okay, there were a lot of effort in content generation and content mm. uh, maybe delivery, but whether that is being uh, used 
to uh, to keep up with the education needs uh, of the children that was not um, that could not be monitored or right. supervised at a level that that was required yeah. because if if there are whatsapp contents that were sent to parents phones whether children are uh, learning from it whether uh, who who are actually guiding uh, children to yeah. even ensure that they are learning so basically the implementation of it was a big challenge um, also because uh, i mean whatever said and done no one was prepared for such a uh, such no, a uh, situation so th- they did what could be done uh, you know at that moment but then uh, this uh, whole implementation was a big challenge uh, i mean uh, another point i would like to mention that uh, you know uh, it was a very good initiative of um, um, ensuring that parents are uh, now getting involved more and more in children's education because yeah. you are either giving giving out worksheets or sending content on the phone or in the television mm-hmm. but then but then who will guide children right so parents especially primary um, school uh, children parents yeah. were actually um, you know told and they were actually when the covid situation was little better it, although children were not coming to school in mm. many states um, uh, parents were invited to schools uh, and they were made aware that how they can help their children in terms right. of ensuring that they are learning but, so but then everything took time Mm-hmm. and again there were lockdowns on and off so this whole uh, delivery uh, or implementation was a big uh, big problem right. uh, one one silver lining was that uh, the kind of um, the kind of services or the kind of support that was available through the frontline officials mm-hmm. whether uh, including the teachers right so mm-hmm. the teachers were the main um, in in terms of education they are the main people but then also the crcs the cluster resource coordinators the block resource coordinators and in a way even anganwadi workers yeah. right so um, so it was like a big uh, bliss in the sense that we had such a huge structure from the top till the bottom and without them even what we could achieve would have been very very difficult to achieve um um and uh, last but not the least i would say that um maybe it was not possible instantly but the whole focus was more on supplying uh, you know supplying content supplying services yeah. but the access part was a big problem i mean uh, whether people are able to afford it access it yeah. uh, those challenges uh, could not be resolved there and then and mm. they are still big big uh, you know challenges in terms of access to uh digital education i think right. that's been a big challenge yeah right yeah no absolutely and i mean i i hope it doesn't come to that but given that cases are starting to rise again and you know it's been in the news again i yeah. think it's almost something that we need to consider um prepare you know, like yeah, pre- yeah prepare for and i mean yeah like that touching wood under the laptop but you know i hope it i hope it doesn't come to that of course but uh, it it is something where we need to sort of i think be reflective and say you know we did like you said so many things right and we do have an incredible sort of ground um you know uh, like feet on the ground in terms of the anganwadi system and teachers and everything that they were able to do but then also i do think there's something to say of um, sort of teachers because they are where they are the position that they hold in you know communities um and they're sort of the focal point of so many different things that the government can do and deliver in terms of services um you, that became such a big uh, roadblock as well because they they were doing so many things yeah. that oh. didn't allow them to sort of focus on you know mm. actually interacting with parents and children after after or beyond a certain point right so yeah. i mean yeah just one of those things we need to reflect on and consider um, yeah because you know we have been at the block level offices you know mm-hmm. cluster level offices and then uh, whenever there is something to be implemented on the ground uh, you know either uh, and that requires a little 
a certain level of um, education or a certain level of maybe be able to teach something, be able to speak uh, on, on certain issues or maybe, mm. uh, you know, delivering certain services. Teachers are the first set of people that are thought about. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, oh, teachers, you know, uh, yeah. and similarly in, in terms of nutrition, on the ground services, Anganwadi workers. Yeah. So then, I mean, it is again uh, a big challenge, as you are saying, because then you are overwhelmed with so many uh, responsibilities, apart mm-hmm. from your core responsibility to teach, mm-hmm. uh, that that it becomes very difficult for the teacher to manage. Yeah. Also, I think the teaching itself uh, has um, has. Um, uh become uh has grown uh in terms of the the process of teaching mm-hmm. in the sense that earlier on if a teacher is inside a school uh, a teacher job is to teach and ensure that certain level of discipline is maintained etc etc right. now it is not only about teaching uh, it is also about this whole mental health of children, uh, whether uh, whether if it's a hybrid mode of teaching, then whether whether what the teacher is speaking about, whether the child is able to learn in where, when the child is not present on a face-to-face basis. Right. So, so and also to ensure all of this mental health and consider other issues that might impact learning. Uh, so I think this whole even teaching scope of teaching has also increased uh, during and after COVID. Yeah. So, so yeah, it is it is a difficult situation. Right. Absolutely. Um, okay. So I mean, given you know we've we've sort of come to the end of our time as well. So I just want to ask two questions to kind of conclude this uh, very insightful discussion. Um, but so the first is. Given, you know, what we've now understood in terms of how states have been approaching the integration of out of school children um, and given what we know of how much this problem has maybe been exacerbated during COVID and there's not enough evidence to say, you know, how much of that has been sort of organically reversed as parents, you know, are able to resend their kids to school or enroll them in government schools and all of that. Um, so in, in your opinion, where do you think the state's priority should be in terms of addressing this sort of larger problem of OSC? Do you think the current approach is something that works in terms of saying, you know, um, we'll do these enrollment drives, we'll try and identify children? Or do you think there's maybe a certain vulnerabilities that need to be uh, perhaps targeted or, you know, at-risk children that need to be identified do you think that the current approach is working or that something else maybe should be prioritized? I mean, in terms of out of school children, um, the current approach through the education space, mm-hmm. um, I don't think there is uh, that much of a problem with that because then as, as, a, as an education department or as uh, one of the officials or as in Samagra Shiksha project office, you are trying to make sure that uh, through teachers, through the cluster resource coordinators, through the communities, mm-hmm. children are identified. And then it's the it's the block or the, uh, or the teacher's responsibility to make sure that they are reintegrated into the schooling system. Right. So in terms of the education system of identifying and re- reintegrating, I don't see um, a much problem with that. Mm-hmm. What I definitely see is a bigger issue, uh, which actually maybe partly also contributes to children getting back um, into the child labor or dropping out of school. And again, you have to make this that effort of again reintegrating them Dang. is the fact that we do not have enough social protection systems in India, uh, which is a bigger issue because uh, when families are uh, still facing different types of vulnerabilities, Mm. they are basically not uh, having uh, sustainable um, sources of income. Um, There is always this cycle uh, that, uh, that, comes when uh, they're not able to um, earn enough to feed every month mm. and then they are basically uh, one of the one of the outcomes of that is even children are uh, being put into uh, earning uh, something for the family right, right. So then um, if if social protection systems are not 
uh, stronger, then this problem will keep coming up, I think. Um, um, and um, I mean, there are so many broader issues related to social protection. But yeah, currently, I think we should focus more on ensuring social protection. And part of the problem, I think, will be automatically resolved. And at the same time, I think the child protection systems, of course, child protection is one big part of social protection. Mm-hmm. But within social protection, one, one part is, uh, you know, um, ensuring protection to the family in terms of income, etc. But also in terms of uh, protecting children's rights. Mm. And uh, and I think uh, making people aware about so many services that are available uh, uh, through government as part of the child protection system. Right. Currently, many, many, many families do not even know about uh, the, the existence of such, uh, uh, you know, services. Right. It's not only about, you know, institutionalization in terms of sending a child to a children's home or a shelter home. Yeah. It is so many services available, which are called under the non-institutional services under child protection. Uh, for example, sponsorship. Yeah. So basically families that are unable to uh, make sure that children's basic rights are met, whether it's education, nutrition, mm-hmm. etc. There are um, uh, options, provisions available to apply for sponsorship, right? right. Uh, and every year um, this eligibility criteria is checked. Mm-hmm. And then if 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 it is um, it falls under the eligibility criteria, then that sponsorship can be renewed. Right. So I think some of these services have to be um, more stronger, and also people need to be more aware about. I mean, there should be enough efforts to create yeah. awareness about these services. Right. I think they are all linked, uh, so that that will indirectly contribute to reduction in out of school children as well. Right. No, absolutely. I think that's a really yeah a really important point and kind of directly leads me to maybe the answer to our next question um which is sort of you know during COVID-19 all of us as part of this sort of sector and you know in some capacity or the other um I, I guess we all tried to do our best in either continuing research or changing direction or you know changing the way in which we approach the same questions we'd always asked um but you know, what do you think that us as researchers, practitioners in this space, uh, where do you think we could have done maybe better than we did, right? And again, touch wood, I hope it doesn't come to that. But if, you know, times of crises, it doesn't have to be COVID, it could be something like, you know, localized climate change and how that sort of affects um, the education sector. But so in times of crises, what do you think our role really should be when it comes to contributing to uh, children's education and well-being? Yeah, I mean, as a research organization, we have learned enough, I think, during COVID, the kind of extreme situations that might occur. Um, As you're saying, it it does not necessarily need to be COVID. There might be other challenges that come uh, come up in the future, which might have maybe... uh, creating a lesser or less severe environment than COVID. But still, I think we have learned enough uh, during last uh, 1.5 to 2 years. And um, uh, in terms of education delivery, I think uh, we should be well prepared for a hybrid mode of education delivery in case uh, there's a situation. I am totally for physical face-to-face learning because that's the best kind of learning that a child can have. Uh, Nothing can, uh, you know, uh, compensate for uh, that one-to-one or, you know, peer learning that you have in school. But then I think uh, to be well prepared for uh, any any future uh, COVID-like situation Situations, I think uh, we should be prepared for a hybrid mode of uh, learning or teaching. And for that, I think there should be a lot of focus um, in ensuring that we have, uh, you know, uh, we have investment on social infrastructure. When it's a social infrastructure, I'm talking about uh, ICT infrastructure as well. So ICT infrastructure, by that I mean having electricity, computers, internet connections in schools, 
at the same time, uh, maybe making sure that households are able to afford, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, um, a basic level of uh, ICT enabled infrastructure that could be helpful for children for their yeah. learning. Uh, maybe uh, government should focus more on ensuring the 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 required in, uh, infrastructure in terms of internet connections till the last mile, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of electricity, in terms of um, not even electricity connections, but a good quality, uh, regular uh, presence of right. connections, you know. Right. So basically, the, the we should put put uh, focus on ensuring that the access side issues are resolved, right? Because a lot of content has been created, a lot of yeah. have been created. Uh, there are so many different modes or mediums of um, delivery of content right now. Yeah. But without the access, solving the access side issues, I don't, I think the challenges will still remain the same. Right. Um, and as I already said, I mean, in, in this kind of a situation, parents and community involvement is extremely essential. If the schools are uh, not open, then beyond the point, teachers are not going to be able to uh, help uh, children learn uh, by not being able to physically pre uh, present. But then community uh, and uh, parents can play a major role. Right. Um, uh, so, so uh, basically, how to how to involve them better? Um, at the same time, how to make sure that their livelihoods are not getting affected? You know. Right. So, I think we have to think about it more because these are not easy problems to resolve. Um, another thing, I feel like um, uh, you know, um, I mean, basically thinking of community uh, infrastructure in terms of for example maybe community reading rooms you know right. if not if not internet connections at the household level but maybe every every village yeah. like like a panchayat you have another additional room mm. with with a with a television with a computer so that um, children because many children face the issue of not having an, enough space in the households to be able mm. to even learn through the digital content you know? right so right. then uh, maybe we can think of those kind of innovative infrastructure uh, development right. uh, like we have the libraries etc so mm. um, yeah and um, and last but not the least i think we should uh, uh, thank enough the frontline officials we should uh, work on motivating them enough and uh, you know uh, basically ensuring that all the all the all their um, remunerations all the all the services that they are supposed to get are available to them on time absolutely and uh, yes. and they 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 have the respect and uh, you know that they deserve uh, so i think that's also equally important right absolutely um yeah no i i completely agree with you and uh, i think this conversation has been incredibly fruitful for me I feel like I've learned a lot um, you know not just on how the sort of um, how the government sort of works towards OSC reintegration and the specific problem of out-of-school children but so much about what's been going on uh, you know during COVID and a lot of these challenges are maybe things that we've spoken about before in you know it's been in the discourse but yeah. it does sort of raise the question of what what are these areas that we as organizations need to, you know, continue to advocate in and for. And um, I mean, also lots of questions that have come out of this, I think, for, you know, further research as well, right? Just on that piece on like school consolidation and rationalization, just on the piece on, um, you know, sort of how have individual states or even districts sort of addressed making these kinds of resources available for children during covid um, and how we can kind of be more resilient during crises. Um, and I think this this last piece that you said on sort of rights-based awareness, right, and ensuring that the most vulnerable, at least what social security systems we do already have in this country. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm sure there are many, many gaps. You will be able to tell us so much more. And yeah, yeah. I look forward to that next piece of work as well. Um, but there is so much that is already there in, in, in way of social security and child protection. So may, maybe that is another place that we really need to be more involved, you know, where we yeah. take this research we do and, uh, you know, give it to the people who will actually 
be able to avail their benefits out of it, right? Or their entitlements and their rights out of it. Um, but okay, so uh, I, I think we can um, end the conversation there. Is there no more questions from my side? But if anything you'd like to add, any you know final thoughts or questions for me, anything like that? No, no. Like um, I'm hoping that uh, in future um, we are able to complement each other in terms of research because uh, of course there are certain aspects of research, specifically if you talk about child protection. This whole um, uh, whole government system of child protection comes under the JJ Act, right? Criminal mm-hmm. Justice Act, and I think Vidhi Legal, uh, as a you know, having l- lawyers uh, on the on in the in, in the team, uh, we can o- always learn from each other and complement each other because uh, some of the social sector schemes and programs do involve a lot of legal aspects. No, absolutely. Even the, even the RT Act is uh, is a law, and we are not experts in that. So I think uh, we should try and find out opportunities of collaborating for the larger goal of um, better um, education delivery and uh, ensuring access to education to every child country. Completely agree. Um, and yeah, we'll, we can take that off this recorded conversation. Uh, but yeah, definitely see many ways in which we could um, could work together. Uh, okay, great. So on that note, um, I'd like to just thank you again so much for agreeing to be a part of this conversation and for educating all of us about all the work you do no, and no, no, no. all these different <laughs> yeah, topics. Um, it's It's been a real pleasure and uh, yeah, I, I think we can end it there. Thank you. Thank you you so much. This podcast is produced by the Vidhi Centre for Legal Policy under the Kota Karma Vidhi Inclusive Education Programme. The Kota Karma Vidhi Inclusive Education Programme is a CSR initiative by Kotak Mahindra Bank Limited. This podcast is based and born from Vidhi's report, Clearing the Air, a synthesised mapping of -of out-of-school children during COVID-19 in India. This report is produced under funding received from Voltas Limited as part of their CSR initiative. Video design and editing by Asad Ali, illustration by Hitesh Sonar.